there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because he is worthy of all of our devotion. another episode of Simply Devotion. And I'm here with my co-host, the amazing professional educator, Jonathan Martin. But before we jump into all that, I want to answer a question on air. I had one of the podcast fans uh, send me a message and ask me a question. And I am beginning to wonder if other people have that same question. The question they asked is, is there a way to donate to this podcast? Because they looked online and they did not see a place to donate. And the quick answer for that is, no, there's not. This is a free podcast and we're trying to keep it free. However, I did provide a list of ways that you could support this podcast. And I want to put them out there right now for all of our listeners, because I'm sure other people may have questions on how they can support our podcast. So if you're wondering how to support Simply Devotion, there are about seven different ways. Way number one, you can give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes or on whatever platform you listen to if they allow it. You can like or heart each episode if your platform allows it. Number three, you can recommend us to family and friends. Number four, when you really like an episode, post it to Facebook or or your social media to get the word out. Number five, you can pray for our time management. Uh, the biggest obstacle for getting episodes out and getting them out on time is actually not money, but it is time management. Both myself and John, my co-host, are doing our doctorates. John is a lot further ahead and almost done his. Me, not so much. Just starting year two. Um, the sixth way you can help our podcast is to listen to any of the older episodes that perhaps you did not hear before or didn't know were there, like season one. That helps boost the algorithm, shows our podcast's backlog has interest. And last but not least, the number seven, the seventh way you could help our podcast. Down the road at some point in season three, we will be starting an advertising campaign at that point we will allow people to give donations not to us for our labor or to the podcast but you might be willing and we would be willing at that point to have you sponsor an advertising campaign so you could put some pennies away for a rainy day when we're ready to do paid advertising. Anyways, those are seven quick ways you can help us promote Simply Devotion. But let's get into this week's topic. Last time we left off with the Passion Week and Jesus had been arrested and gone to trial. And now we're going to focus in on what happened next, which we all know is the cross. Let's get at it. Good to be here, Vinny. Before we even get into that, because we were talking about history and the historical view of Jesus and not just uh, the Christian view of Jesus, I thought we could spend a little time and look at some quotes about what other people, non-Christians, have said about the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah. These are quotes probably, I don't know. I don't know how extensive your reading is, but these are quotes we haven't discussed. 
the the first perspective I wanted to share is from a Jewish theologian. The second perspective I want to share is from a Muslim theologian. And the third perspective I'm going to share is from an agnostic, atheist-leaning theologian. And then, you know, we can have a, question, a Christian perspective, but <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's be equitable in hearing across the spectrum as we kick off one of the most important episodes about the historical Jesus. What, what do other people think about it? So I found this quote from this Jewish theologian, Pinkness Lapaid, and I'm going to spell his name. Yeah, I'm going to spell his name. It's P-I-N-C-H-A-S L-A-P-I-D-E. And he was a Jewish theologian uh, born in 22, 1922 and passed away in 1997. He says that conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted in 33 CE. The assumption that Jesus died is about 30 CE. The time for development was thus two or three years at most. So he's actually talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which of course you have to have a crucifixion before you have a resurrection. Mm -hmm. He's saying the fact that Paul was aware of this and Paul converted based on this information establishes the historicity of the crucifixion. And he has a whole book, it's a fascinating book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. Nice. And, and he is an Orthodox Jew. He is not a Christian. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's just looking at the historical evidence He's not making a Jewish claim necessarily he does in his book, but necessarily in that quote. In that quote, he's simply making the claim. Well, he's making two claims, isn't he? That the resurrection happened. And at least Paul was convinced by it, by the crucifixion and re resurrection of Jesus. That's that's great, actually. Um, and I think it's it's important for people to realize that when we talk about Jesus, we're not just drawing from what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible is a great source. It's a, it's a good source. It's, it's a source where we get a lot of what we know about Jesus from. But there is, there is outside uh, sources, um, sources outside of the Bible itself that also confirm uh, the existence of Jesus. And in this case, uh, his death. Right, right. The second quote I want to talk about is from Raisa Aislan. And he's a Muslim. Well, in, in full disclosure, he is a Muslim. And he's a Muslim theologian with uh, his doctorate in New Testament history, I believe. Um, he was, I should tell you, a Christian for some point in his youth. It was like a fad he went through. I read his book, Zealot. And his argument is that, yeah, Jesus is an absolute historical uh, figure, um, but he sees Jesus not as necessarily the savior of the world, but as a typical insurrectionist, if we could use a word like that. I don't know if, if Aislan uses that exact word, but he sees him as uh, a political figure who was persecuted because of his political views. But in, in making that case in his book, Zealot, which is a, a good read, I enjoyed the book, he cannot deny the historicity of Jesus being crucified by Rome. And so his point and the quote I'm sharing from him is he says, there's only one reason under uh, Ro the Roman Empire to be crucified, and that is for treason or sedition. Crucifixion, we have to understand, was not actually a form of capital punishment for Rome. In fact, it was often the case that the criminal would be killed and then crucified. I don't know about that claim he makes. That's his claim and his scholarship he will have to defend. But I think the point he's making is 
the Roman Empire didn't necessarily use crucifixion just to kill any common criminal. It was to humiliate someone who was a threat to the Roman Empire. Yes, as far as my knowledge on crucifixion is concerned, uh, it meshes with what he's saying that uh, crucifixion was reserved not for your common criminal, but it was reserved for the worst kind of criminal. And yeah, definitely somebody who is uh, causing an insurrection or is responsible for causing an insurrection. Um, yeah, that would make sense that they would reserve crucifixion for uh, a criminal such as, as that. It's not just about killing somebody. It's about humiliating them. Aislinn, in his book, Zealot, sees Jesus, he, he makes the distinction that Jesus was not a zealot, like the group of zealots, but he was a type of that zealot. He represented a threat to the production of that kind of mindset. And for him, that's the reason Jesus had to be crucified. So in these two examples, what we see, what I see, John, is two people from a different worldview than yours and mine mm -hmm. looking at historical evidence and saying, we're not denying the crucifixion of Jesus. We just think it meant different things and happened for different reasons, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've looked at a Jewish quote. We've looked at a Muslim author who has his uh, doctorate in New Testament history. And now we're going to look at who is probably, you know, we've quoted him and talked about him throughout the whole season, but it's probably the foremost New Testament agnostic atheist, Bart Ehrman. You and I have talked a lot off air about Bart. And I mean, no two Christian theologians get together and don't have to talk about Bart at some point. <laughs> uh, Bart Ehrman is firmly in the, he puts himself firmly in the agnostic camp but the truth is my assessment of him is he's in the atheist camp but i'm not going to project that on him because he says he's agnostic but what he means when he says he's agnostic is that he's keeping an open intellectual mind um which a scholar should do uh regardless of what you think about bart he is a good scholar I think he makes a lot of assumptions that I can't make, um, but he probably would think that about guys like you and I. <laughs> There's a reason why uh, we're Christian and he's not, right? I mean, it's, it, it really comes down to that, right? How do you interpret the facts? It comes down uh, to hermeneutics. We're looking at the same text, uh, the same history and making different decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So one of his like blockbuster books, bestseller books, was a book called Did Jesus Exist? And I read that book from cover to cover. I really enjoyed that book. Um, of course, full disclosure to the people listening to the podcast, he is not a Christian. As I said, he's uh, agnostic, leaning atheist, and he is not defending the version of Jesus we believe and the things about Jesus we believe. But he's going as far as it is intellectually possible to go in the realm of skepticism in agreeing where he can agree. And the whole point of the book, Did Jesus Exist?, is to put down the mythology of mysticism, which is the idea that Jesus wasn't a real person. Mm. Bar Ehrman finds that idea ludicrous. Mm. Um, that anyone would suggest Jesus wasn't real and that Jesus wasn't crucified by Rome. And so these uh, quotes that I'm gonna give are actually from that book. They're from Did Jesus Exist? And here's a quote I'm going to read. Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and a teacher who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor 
of Judea. This is page 12, actually, of that book. So he's saying, despite what your common people may say and how many opinions are out there, scholarship agrees that Jesus was a real person, was a Jewish man, and was crucified under Tiberius Caesar, right? That's it. I mean, so when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, people may disagree what it means. They may may even disagree to some point how it happened or why it happened. Mm -hmm. But there doesn't seem to be a strong intellectual historic disagreement that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, It would definitely be easier for an agnostic or an atheist to say ah, Jesus didn't exist you know he's just some made up dude who did made up things uh, to create a religion right uh, that would be the easiest way of explaining Jesus away but what the scholars that you have been quoting uh, tell us or at least what we all can agree on is that number one, there was a Jesus of Nazareth who existed. Number two, this Jesus was an influential person in the sense that he had some sort of following. Number three, he died by crucifixion while Pontius Pilate was a governor, right? So we can agree on all those facts, right? Doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, doesn't matter whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, right? We can all agree that Jesus existed, that he was influential, and that he died under the request or the command of Pontius Pilate. Bart presses on to say some strong things about the emerging group of intellectuals who want to just deny those three tenets you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, And Bart says, well, let me read that group of people who attempt to say there was no Jesus, there was no crucifixion. Therefore, we don't have to worry about if there was a resurrection. That's the reason to dismantle it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That group is called mythicists. And here's what Bart goes on to say. He says, it's fair to say that mythicists as a group and as individuals are not taken seriously by the vast majority of scholars in the field of New Testament or early Christianity or ancient history or all theology, (laughs) right? So there are going to be people who are going to be under the idea of the notion that this is all made up by Christians. Mm -hmm. But what Bart is saying is scholarship cannot refute away his existence. Mm -hmm. And those who would like to try to refute away his existence or his crucifixion, which is the point we're moving towards, Mm -hmm. are not scholars at all. Mm. They're this group that he calls mythicists. (laughs) Right? Right. Right. It's it's, it's an intellectual way of saying conspiracy theories. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's an um, academic insult, really, if you think about it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's as close as academics get to uh, insulting people. <laughs> so, it's, just, it's a scholarly way, a, a yes. gentleman's way. <laughs> yes, right. So again, we're not saying that Bart agrees with everything that that we say on this podcast. But what we are saying is that... Uh, if you are intellectually honest with the evidence, right, at the very least, you will believe that Jesus existed, he was influential, and he died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, at right. the very least. Right, right. And so I said that, to be fair, I'd quote a Christian scholar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've had the Jewish scholar, we've had the, the, the Muslim scholar, we've had the agnostic scholar, and so... Uh, Dale uh, Allison, who is a New Testament Christian scholar um, and historian, um, he says it is a historical fact that some of the followers of Jesus 
came to believe that he was raised from the dead soon after his execution. Mm. Some of these people believed by name, and one of them was the apostle Paul, who claims plainly to have seen Jesus after his death. Thus, for the historian, now he's not talking as a Christian, he's talking as an historian. For the historian, Christianity begins after the death of Jesus, not with the resurrection itself. Jesus comes into power because of the historical, undeniable claims of his crucifixion and the purported evidence of his resurrection. Which brings us all the way back to where we left off in the last episode. Yeah, we left off on uh, Thursday night. Uh, We talked a little bit about the Passover celebration. So Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And when they were done eating the Passover meal, Bible tells us that they all got up. Actually, the Bible gives us a little detail that they were they sang a hymn, right? (laughs) They sang a hymn and they started making their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane, which is not necessarily something unusual for Jesus because Jesus seems to have enjoyed finding solitary places. Uh, But in this moment, it was a crucial moment because Jesus knew that he would be dying soon. And so he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane specifically to pray because he needed God's strength to carry out really the plan that everything he has done has been leading up to this. So he goes to pray in the garden and he asks God for, for strength. Now you've mentioned to me in our private conversations, some interesting details about uh, getting to the garden of Gethsemane uh, from Jerusalem because they celebrated Passover in Jerusalem in the upper room in Jerusalem. And so that, that walk from that upper room in Jerusalem to the garden of Gethsemane requires them to pass uh, the Kidron Valley, which is uh, right. which, there's an interesting piece of information there that I think our listeners would love to hear. If you accept the traditional site of the upper room, and if you don't, that's fine. We're still someplace in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And we need to make our way to the Mount of Olives. And the only way we can make our way to the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem is through Kidron Valley. Um, And Kidron Valley is a valley of death. You know, we have the Psalm, though I go through the valley of death, right? Mm -hmm. This is the idea. Kidron Valley is the valley of death. Why would we say that? Well, you're going to go in that slip of land between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And all you have along that path are graves. In fact, you only get about a quarter of the way up the Mount of Olives and you get to a place literally called the Tombs of the Prophets. (laughs) Right? Now, I don't know that real prophets were buried there or not. That's not the point of the episode. But people they thought were prophets or maybe were prophets. We're, we're buried there. It's basically like, here's the tomb of our ancestors. And so you would, going from the traditional site, walk past the temple, make an L turn towards the valley, and you actually descend down lower because the Temple Mount builds everything up. The Temple Mount is on a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you have your gates. And, and so you're going down before you go up. And then you're going to go up past the tomb of the prophets to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. If Passover had already begun, then they would already be killing lambs. And the place that they vented out the blood was over the wall of the Temple Mount. In fact, you can see holes in the Temple Mount wall for the drainage of blood. And this may seem gruesome, but if everyone has to have a Passover lamb... And everyone's going to Jerusalem. I mean, there's going to be more lambs killed in Jerusalem that weekend than Black Friday sales (laughs) happening the day after Thanksgiving in America. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have 
hundreds of thousands of people gathering together to celebrate Passover that requires the death of a lamb. You're going to have a lot of blood. And those lambs are going to be killed and the blood is going to be vented over the wall of the temple, which is going to go down in the Kidron Valley. Um, right, because it's, a, you know, blood's a liquid. It's going to find its lowest point. Gravity works in Jerusalem. So that blood is going into the Kidron Valley. Right, which is the lowest point, right? Mm-hmm. So when we walk through Kidron Valley, one of the points my guide made is here you have Jesus coming from this meal, which is his last meal with his disciples, where he, where he makes claims like my flesh and my blood are the signs of the new covenant. And they're walking into a valley of death. They're going past the temple, past the place of life, down into a dark valley at night, down past many tombs. If the blood is in their path, if they're walking through the blood, definitely there'll be blood along the temple wall dripping down. Like this is a really sort of solemn setup to get to the garden. Mm-hmm. It may not have seemed odd that Jesus would want to go to the Mount of Olives to pray because he he did like solitude. He did like prayer and he liked to do it on mountains. It's a big deal. You keep finding out, right? Mm-hmm. When you read the Gospels, right? But then he literally had to walk by the tomb of the of the prophets as the last big landmark before you're in Gethsemane. And it's like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. Oh, mm-hmm. how I've longed to put my wing around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's in the garden and will he get his chance? Yeah. What, what, a, what an extraordinary visual because Jesus is basically on his last march. Exactly. As a free man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On his last march as a free man, he's heading towards the garden to pray. And he literally passes a graveyard. The graveyard, which represents prophets, many of whom were rejected. And he also encounters pools of blood from lambs that are slaughtered. Lambs that really point to him. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Right, those lambs represent Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. Jesus is given this visual reminder that he is going to be rejected like those prophets of old and that he's going to die like those lambs in the temple. And with those two visuals, he marches into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is this is not an easy time for Jesus. We know that because the Bible tells us that while he was praying, he was literally asking God if there was any other way to save humanity from the consequences of sin to please take this cup away from him. Right. That's literally what Jesus is praying. God, if there is any other way to do this, if we can save humanity in a way that doesn't require my death, please, Lord, take this cup away from me. But then Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. At the end of the day, even though Jesus was suffering, oh, and by the way, the Bible tells us that he began to sweat and his sweat were were like drops of blood. Right now, is that a description that he was just sweating a lot or was he actually sweating blood? The the text can be read both ways, right? It could be that he was sweating blood. It could be that he was just sweating a lot. Regardless of what was happening there, one thing I think we can all agree on is that Jesus was suffering. He was literally beginning to feel the weight of the sins of the world being laid on him because the bible tells us that when jesus died as a sacrifice for the world that he became sin for us right jesus literally becomes sin so at some point the sins of the entire world past present and future were being laid on him now going back to the sacrificial lambs right When a person was sacrificing a lamb for atonement, for the forgiveness of sins, they would put their hands on that lamb and they would confess their sins and symbolically transfer their sins from themselves to that lamb, right? That was the religious service. 
right? That took place in the temple every single day. They symbolically transferred their sins from themselves to that lamb and that lamb died in their place so that they would not have to. And so the same thing is happening with Jesus, right? He is becoming sin for us. The sins of the world, past, present, and future, are being laid upon Jesus. And I believe that that begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's praying to God, as he's crying out to God, as he's begging God, is there any other way to do this? But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. As that is happening, I believe that he is literally feeling the immense and agonizing pressure of the sins of all the world being laid on him. Because something is happening here, and I believe it's the process of of transferring sin to Jesus. It's the crushing of the olives. Right. that's, That's another interesting point to be made is that all of this is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was an olive grove. And so when you picked olives, you had to press those olives to get the oil out of those olives. You have here another picture, another symbolic picture, just like when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley and he saw the the tombs of the prophets who were rejected, just like he would be. And as he saw the blood of the lambs that represented his blood that would soon be shed. Again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you now have an olive press in the same location that Jesus himself is getting pressed and crushed as well. Yeah, it gives you another look uh, at Jesus because he literally asks his disciples, his closest friends in his inner circle. And he says, guys, just pray with me because I need it right now. Right. I, I need it right now. I need your support. And they and they can't stay. They can't stay up. Right. And that Jesus tells them, he's like, guys, you can't you can't even watch and pray with me for one hour. The tradition says that, you know, there's this olive press and they're sleeping by this olive press. And it mm. makes sense that it would be an olive press in the garden. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so they're, so in tradition, they're sleeping by this olive press, not noticing that Jesus is being pressed. And then on top of that, someone he loves comes marching up the side of the hill after him right mm, yes shortly after this this crushing they're no longer alone it's not just peter james john and jesus crowd shows up led by judas himself one of jesus's disciples here we have it here we have it we have a disciple of jesus coming with an army to rescue him right yeah <laughs> No, No? (laughs) sorry to disappoint you, Vinny, but uh, he he doesn't show up with an army to rescue Jesus and take over Jerusalem. No, he shows up with an army. The temple guards anyways. Yeah, temple guards to arrest Jesus because he has already, we alluded to this in our last episode, he has already made a deal with the Sanhedrin. He was going to hand Jesus over. He was going to, he was paid. He was paid. 30 pieces of silver to not only identify Jesus, but to pinpoint his location. So he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. And just so that there is no confusion, he reaches out towards Jesus. He embraces Jesus. He kisses Jesus on the cheek, thus signaling to the temple guards that this is the man that they paid to arrest. What you're saying is a really important historical fact that is often misoverlooked that nullifies a lot of skeptics exceptions to this story. Both Muslim skeptics and agnostic and atheist skeptics propagate an idea that it wasn't really Jesus who got crucified. In in making that argument, they are attempting to say, well, no wonder they could see him after resurrect. They got the wrong guy in the dark. That is like a serious, well, it's not serious, it's ludicrous, but it is a to them a serious argument they make to throw skepticism on the resurrection and the crucifixion. To suggest perhaps there was a substitute, maybe one of his disciples uh, got mistaken and ended up being crucified or swapped out. Some even make a big bones on Thomas mm. because Thomas, the name Thomas in Greek Didymus means twin. Obviously, 
if you believe in the virgin birth, you can't have a twin. <laughs> and right. Just because someone's name is Thomas or twin doesn't mean that they're the twin of Jesus. It's just like, like they just, right. right? Like they're just grasping at stuff here, right? But let's just say that the principle is that it's a lookalike. This kind of nullifies this argument. Right. One of his closest disciples, one whom he loved, one who Jesus was like, the one who dips his hand in the dish with me, right? Like, they know each other. They've seen each other in daylight. He's not yeah. going to make a mistake when he's being paid mm-hmm. to deliver the right guy. And he walks up to him with this code, like, it's the one that I kissed. This is the right guy. Mm-hmm. It's not Thomas. It's not another disciple. It's not Peter. It's not. It is Jesus who is rightfully arrested in that garden, unless we're going to throw out many historical documents. Right. And, and, and so it's irrefutable, right? The Jesus that died under Pontius Pilate was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth, the influential figure that we all know and understand. No, that's a a great point, Vinny. Appreciate you bringing that up because it's true. Judas specifically pointed out the right guy. So the guy that they had in custody was the right guy. It was the right Jesus, not a lookalike. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Thursday night, he is arrested, and it seems as though there was a midnight trial, which, by the way, was illegal. Uh, That was not something that the Sanhedrin would normally do um, to try someone at night. They would normally wait until daytime, but... they had they had this whole thing figured out, right? They wanted him tried. They had witnesses. I mean, just think about it. You arrest a dude, and and then at nighttime you you sentence them, you know, as guilty, right? Like they had all this figured out, right? We were gonna arrest him. We're gonna have our witnesses ready to go. Uh, we're gonna accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple because back on when was it tuesday when they were questioning his authority you know jesus mentioned destroy this temple and then in three days i'll bring it back up again right so so now they're you know they're saying oh he wanted to destroy the temple which should have offended jewish people so the jewish courts tried him and they found him guilty which by the way if if you read the biblical account even the witnesses couldn't get everything right you know they were contradicting each other but still jesus is guilty even though they're contra- <laughs> so i mean the whole thing is a sham right everything right. is is set up to frame jesus taking his words out of context witnesses that don't even agree which by the way according to torah you needed at least two witnesses to agree and they don't even have two witnesses that are agreeing. So, I mean, the whole thing is illegal. The whole thing is a sham. But the goal was to accuse Jesus of something so terrible that even the Jewish people would not want to defend him, right? And then, because they want to kill him, they send him over to Pilate because, again, the Jews are under the influence of the Roman government. They can't do anything without uh, Roman permission, and they especially can't kill anyone without Roman permission. So then they need to accuse Jesus of something that would want to make Rome kill Jesus. And so they accuse Jesus of being guilty of something that all Jewish people would be offended by and would not want to defend, which is that he wanted to destroy the temple. They, they accuse Jesus. They sentence him as guilty of trying to destroy the temple and also to basically claiming to be God. When the trial is over, uh, they throw Jesus into prison cell essentially, um, to spend the night. And the next morning, they send Jesus over to Pilate. So now we're on Friday morning here. And they send Jesus over to Pilate. Now, of course, the Romans, they don't care if somebody's claiming to be God. They don't care, you know, if somebody's claiming to destroy the temple, Right. I mean, yeah, it's big deal, but they don't really care about those types of things. Uh, So they need something to get Jesus on or to pin Jesus on that would make the Romans want to listen. And so they go the insurrection route, which is exactly what our Muslim scholar said. And so they basically say to Pilate, look, 
Jesus was trying to start an insurrection, right? He's wanting to destroy the temple, right? <laughs> you know, they may have even mentioned the whole, you know, marching in on a donkey. On a donkey thing. Saying right? he's king, letting people call him king. Exactly. Which is why when Pilate is talking with the Jews, they specifically mention we have no king but Caesar, right? Mm. Distancing themselves from this insurrectionist who's pretending to be a king, right? It's interesting because when you read the, the biblical text, it almost seems as though Pilate knows that this is a sham. It almost seems as though he knows that there's really nothing here and that Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of death. All right. Um, and of course, if, if you believe the supernatural elements to the story, you know, he has his wife who has a dream and she comes and tells him, hey, have nothing to do with this man. So you have that element. But you also have um, moments where it seems as though he's trying to get Jesus off. And so, you know, at first he kind of has Jesus flogged, right? He has him whipped. Uh, and he, and by the way, whipping uh, was not, I mean, whipping is bad anyway, right? Any, any mm -hmm. one of us mm -hmm. whose parents have ever, I, you know, I don't, I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Not a fan over here. <laughs> like, you know, whipping in and of itself, using anything to whip somebody is already terrible. Mm -hmm. But when the Romans whipped people, they used what was called a catonine tail. Mm. And you basically have a whip that doesn't just have one strand. You have a whip with multiple strands. And at the end of each one of these strands, you have pieces of metal or bone that were essentially designed to rip your flesh off. So it's like, it's like an Indiana Jones whip with a fish hook on the end. Right, well, think, but, but it's like he's holding more than one. Mm. <laughs> because there's multiple strands oh, right, gotcha. that, that come out of that one one handle. And so they would whip the victim and those pieces of bone or metal would attach themselves to your skin or to your flesh. And then they would pull back and essentially ripping your skin. And Pilate thought that that punishment would have been good enough for the Jewish leaders. And so he brings Jesus out again. He's like, look, I have him whipped. I don't really see anything wrong, but, but he's been punished. I've punished him for you. And the Jewish leaders are like, no, that's not enough. We want him dead. And then Pilate, he kind of like, he's like, okay, wait, there's that thing that we do during Passover where we release a criminal, right? Well, hey guys, we have this Jesus guy who you say is a criminal. Do you want me to release him to you or, and it's almost like he picks the worst guy, right? <laughs> or do you want this guy named Barabbas, right? who is an accused insurrectionist, who did start a riot, who, you know, like, do you want this guy or Jesus, right? Which, which one do you want? It's as if he's juxtaposing, right, on purpose, Jesus with the worst guy imaginable so that he can move the crowd toward, hey, you know, we'd rather have Jesus. Yet the crowd still cries out for Jesus, right? We don't yeah. want want Jesus. We want Barabbas. I would like to offer just a little bit of a historical sort of thought here mm -hmm. about what could be going on with Pilate. Mm -hmm. Because I think you made a very valid point that I hadn't thought about. And you really sort of helped me think about this in a new way. Like, why is Pilate so compassionate to Jesus? Mm -hmm. And it's odd because, you know, I don't think we ever have an Easter story where we don't put Pilate as the villain. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, he is the guy that crucifies Jesus, right? He gives the orders. He gives the orders, but he's trying not to. And I think that's a point that is not emphasized enough in the story. And there's even some in John's account of it, Jesus showing some empathy back to Pilate. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there are people doing worse than what you're doing here, man. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But if I think about it just historically for a minute, there is the idea that if you believe in the divine, which we do, that, you know, Pilate's wife had some sort of intuition
intuition about what was happening here. But even if you take that aside and you want to look at it from a skeptic point of view again, pilot. Pontius Pilate is a governor, not a tetrarch king. He is not from the Herod dynasty. Which mm-hmm. He's not pretending to be a Jew or start up a Jewish monarchy, right? Like he's not mm-hmm. Herod the Great, the king of the Jews or any of his descendants, right? He mm-hmm. is strictly a Roman mm. politician. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he literally took the position away, not him personally, but the Roman Senate took it away from Herod Archelaus and gave it to him as a secular position. Right. Right. So he's really like, he's got no, he is a pagan. He has no vested interest in the squabble among these silly Jews from, I'm talking about his perspective, mm-hmm. who are fighting over some kingship. And he knows like, dude, I'm the Roman Poncicler. Like, no one is going to go to war against us from this little backwater town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't care how he destroys your temple. I don't care what he says about your God. Like my guy is going to come down here and destroy any insurrection that happens here. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see Jesus from a historical point of view as a credible threat to Rome or to Caesar, nor right. should he. Right. So, right. Like it just rings so true to me that Pontius Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook. Maybe he has some moral convictions. Jesus is not a real threat as a human. He is as the living son of God, but Pontius Pilate doesn't believe that. (laughs) And on top of that, if crucifixion is truly reserved for the worst of criminals, Jesus doesn't fit that description, at least not in Pilate's mind. He doesn't fit that description. So why would we cheapen something like crucifixion by using it on some dude that the Jewish people don't like? And, and why would I why would I do it on Passover weekend and risk upsetting the whole populace mm-hmm. who would be a greater threat than this one man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff there. There is a um, lot of stuff that we don't often think through. But when we look, think about it from a historical point of view, not just our Christian conviction, but the historical point of view, it really, for me, helps solidify the absurdity that people who would say it didn't go down this way. Mm-hmm. Because there is good secular reasons why it would go down mm-hmm. the same way as the biblical narrative. Yeah, for sure. And and I find Pilate to be a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost as if, you know, we kind of go back to that that tree again, right? That fig tree uh-huh. uh, bearing fruit. And it's like, even in this moment, Pilate has to make a decision. And it seems as though everything that Pilate knows up to this point is telling him, let Jesus go, let Jesus go. Let Jesus go. It's like Jesus is biding all this time with him. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to give the guy every opportunity to get it out. Yeah, exactly. And yet he finally just succumbs to the Jewish leader's wishes. And so ultimately his decision is his to own, right? He ultimately sentences Jesus, even though it was against his uh, intuition, it was against maybe his best senses, but still the decision to allow it to happen ultimately still rests on him. He's, He's just a fascinating character to me, at least when it comes to the trial, the trial of Jesus. Uh, because he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have approved it. And, and when I teach this to my students in my classroom, a lot of students are like, wait, but but if, if Pilate didn't sentence Jesus to death, then does that mean Jesus wouldn't have died? I was like, well, Jesus probably would have died anyway, probably at the hands of writing, uh, you know. There's no messianic reason that Jesus had to die under the Romans. Right. No, he had to be killed by his friends, the Jews. Mm -hmm. You're right. And so I said, you know, there was just there would have been another way. He would have died just in a different way, because even in the death of Jesus, those that are responsible for his death are responsible because they made the decision to do that. Right. And even and so I just find it interesting that even Pilate had the choice. I believe he chose wrong. I believe he chose the wrong side. But even Pilate had the choice here to bear fruit or not. 
Um, so it goes back to that that tree metaphor that we introduced in in our last episode. Pilate is interesting, even post-Jesus. There's a whole sort of debate that happens amongst the church fathers as to what happened to Pilate based on how much guilt church fathers put on him. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a fascinating story. I was just looking at some of it. You know, some believe that he committed suicide because... He had to have the most shameful death. Others argued that, no, the guilt was on the Jews, not on the Romans. And so they allowed him to have an unshameful death. There's a, So there's like a lot of mythology that follows him because of his central role here. I think, I don't know, John, for me, when I think about Pilate, I think about Jesus and I just, I love the compassion Jesus shows to him. And I love that it shows that not everybody who does wrong are completely without options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Pilate, we see he didn't have to make those choices. But he ultimately did make those choices. And he ultimately okayed the death of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so Barabbas goes free and Jesus begins to carry the cross. A cross that I believe was actually meant for Barabbas. So an interesting dynamic there that the guy who was guilty, who was a thief, who did deserve to die, goes free and Jesus dies on the cross that was meant for someone else. Hmm. I mean, it's it's just a powerful visual there. Um, You know, Barabbas goes free and Jesus goes on to die on a cross that was meant for Barabbas. I think that answers your students' objections, right? When your students ask, you know, wait, didn't it have to be this way? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. The cross wasn't even prepared for Jesus. Yeah. It was prepared for the rightful person that should have had it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't mean right. Jesus wouldn't have died. It doesn't mean he wouldn't become the Savior. It just didn't have to be the way it was. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It didn't it didn't have to go down the way it did. It it did, right? It went down the way that it did, and ultimately Jesus fulfilled his purpose and his mission. But the idea that it had to happen one way and it had to happen this way, I'm not, you know, that's not a necessary assumption. At the end, Jesus would have fulfilled his mission. Whether that was with Pilate or not, whether that was, uh, you know, on Barabbas's cross or or not, right? Right. <laughs> At the end of the day, he would have fulfilled his mission and he would have accomplished his purpose. Jesus is now carrying the cross towards Golgotha, place of the skull, and you know, stuff happens kind of on the way. Um, you know, obviously Jesus is struggling. He's lost a lot of blood already because of the whipping. Um, you know, he's, he's, it's not an easy time for him to carry that cross, which is why the Roman soldier needed, uh, to ask, uh, Simon, the Serene, the Cyrene, yeah, to help Jesus carry that cross the rest of the way. And so Jesus gets to the place of the skull and they begin the process of crucifixion. Now, crucifixion, Vinny, it's a terrible way to die. Like it was literally designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain and and to do it over a long period of time so that the person would die slowly, but in a lot of pain. Hmm. Um, it, it was absolute torture. When you look into what crucifixion was like, just just thinking about the fact that they nailed you to a cross. Some people say that in a lot of pictures or or even video renditions of the crucifixion, you know, they'll show that they nail through the hand, right? But that's right. not really where they would have nailed uh, a person to the cross. They would have done it through the wrist. And the reason that they would have done it through the wrist is because in that location, there is uh, a nerve that the nail would have hit. Now, I don't know if you've ever hit your funny bone. You know, you Mm -hmm. you hit your Mm -hmm. elbow, Mm -hmm. you you feel a a shock of pain going Mm -hmm. right through your arm. It's not so funny. Yeah, I know. It's not so funny. But that's essentially what crucifixion would have done if they would have put the nail through the wrist. It would have hit that nerve 
And that nail would have just been there, constantly hitting that nerve over and over and over again. So you're feeling that shock of pain going through your arms. All right. And that's just one little part of crucifixion. In the Jerusalem Museum, mm-hmm. they have a first century hand um, that, you know, they dug out of Jerusalem or the surrounding area, right, of a crucifixion. And the nail pierces through the, the wrist, through the area you're talking of. So, uh, and in fact, I took a picture of it. So I'll try to remember to put it into the show notes when I do the show notes. So what you're saying is very accurate. And again, the decision to do it through the wrist as opposed to the hand is simply to inflict pain. That's its purpose, to inflict pain, but not just pain like one and done type of pain, but a type of pain that would be recurring over and over until you died because it would be constantly hitting that nerve. It's, it's insane, right? The, the, the mind would conceive of, of a torture like that, but it gets worse because crucifixion was also designed to be a a slow death. And so when you think about being crucified, right, you you get nailed to the cross and then you're lifted upright. And when your arms are outstretched, right, the only way to be able to breathe is by straightening out your arms so Mm. that they're perpendicular, right, to your body. Mm Mm-hmm. But because of being crucified to the cross, you start to hang, right? And so you you start drop your body starts dropping so that your hands start moving above your head, right? Well, they're not moving, but you, they're nailed to the cross. But but you start hanging, and your body starts pulling your your body down, right? Your weight starts pulling your body down. And in that position, it becomes more difficult to breathe. And so in order to be able to breathe, you'd have to lift your body up. And in order to lift your body up, you'd have to use your feet. But your feet are also nailed Mm. to that cross. Mm. So you'd literally have to put your weight on a nail that's going through your feet so that you could lift your body up to just take a breath. I mean, it, it is it is just torture. It is absolute 100% torture. And so over time, by the way, people didn't just die of crucifixion, you know, within an hour or two. It, this could last days because eventually the person would just get so tired that they couldn't lift their body up anymore and they would just hang there and die of suffocation. Mm-hmm. But we know that Jesus did not die of suffocation. We know that number one, Jesus died before the other two criminals who were crucified with him because they broke the legs of the other two criminals. And by the way, they would break the legs. Why? So that they couldn't lift themselves up and breathe. Mm. They would kill them faster. That, that's the only reason to kill them to break their legs. And they wanted to they wanted them to die before the sunset. Um because of Sabbath and whatnot. Jesus did not die because of suffocation. Just died for another reason. Okay. It wasn't the cross that killed Jesus. Um, from a Christian perspective, if you believe the Bible, if you believe the fact that Jesus's death was one for atoning sin, what killed Jesus was sin, which is why he died before the other criminals, which is why they didn't need to break his legs. Which is why when they pierced him, they realized that he was already dead. It wasn't the cross that killed Jesus. It was the sins of the world. That's my perspective. It's Paul's perspective too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, right? When Paul says that he became sin for us who knew no sin. Mm-hmm. Right? It's what Jesus forecasted to Nicodemus in John 3. When I am lifted up, right? When I am lifted up as what? The serpent mm-hmm. was lifted up in the desert, right? What's This used to trouble me, John. Why was Jesus identified with serpents? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> because it wasn't Satan he's identifying with. He's saying, when I am lifted up and sin is on me, then you will know. Mm. 
Yeah. So I, I think I think it's important distinction because yeah, as brutal as crucifixion is or was, it really wouldn't make Jesus that special just to be crucified, would it? Mm-hmm. I mean, hundreds of people were crucified, maybe thousands. I, I, I I'm not that familiar with the the Roman process, but none of them were the savior of the world, right? So. It is that substitutionary perspective of the cross that history can't give you. And we can verify that there was a Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we can verify that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and that he did die. These are hard historical facts that, you know, only people who engage in conspiracy theories dispute. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that death was substitutionary is not a historical idea it's a theological idea and it requires you to go from evidence and the evidence is clear Jesus was a real person really crucified to the leap as Kierkegaard Sirion Kierkegaard the Danish philosopher would say the leap of faith here is what we know happened what do you now believe about mm-hmm. what happened and in the realm of faith, you have to either accept it or reject it. One of the things I'm wondering also about, John, is the Torah's curse for those who hang on a tree. I don't know if you looked at the, the curse for those who hang on a tree, right? The question arises often, why didn't the Jews just kill him? Well, there are arguments for that, right? Like they don't have the authority. Really? Well, because I see them stoning other people and preparing to stone other people like the woman at the temple, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't have the reason to kill him. They don't have the right to kill him on the charges that they're charging him for. But Jewish people kill people all the time in accordance with the Torah. But I think the curse in the Torah for one who hangs in the tree is a significant curse that they couldn't bring about under the Jewish mechanism for a capital offense. Torah would give them the right to stone someone to death, not to hang them on a tree. It's the Romans who are practicing crucifixion who can hang you on a tree. But let's look at that curse. It's an interesting curse. Yeah, so Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 has a law that is a curse, as you'll see. If someone is guilty of a capital offense, if someone is guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a tree, some translations will say pole, but tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So my hypothesis is, John, that they were trying to get Jesus to be under the curse of God. Hence the need for crucifixion rather than just stoning him to death, which they did attempt on a couple of occasions, right? It's just an interesting side fact of uh, a curse that's in the Torah. It's hard to say if that was in their mind or not. Uh, But either way, Jesus doesn't hang in the tree overnight and the curse would not have been in effect. Hard to say if that's what they were attempting or not, but it is an interesting side look at uh, this obscure law in Deuteronomy. Whether or not they wanted to call that curse down upon Jesus or not, hard to say, but it definitely sent a message. And the message is we curse this man as much as we can possibly curse Hmm. any Jewish person. Yeah. So he's crucified on Friday. He's taken off the cross on Friday, right? Yep. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus Mm -hmm. as Pilate for the body. That's correct? That is correct. And Joseph is apparently a rich Pharisee. It was Joseph's tomb that Jesus was buried in. Right. Either Joseph's tomb or Joseph's family tomb. There's some discrepancy, disagreements, arguments over that. But he gets the body and he places the body in the tomb. And then it's Sabbath. And so you can't really do anything. Like they have to stop preparing the bodies. Right? It's Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And so... We move from Thursday's arrest to Friday's crucifixion to Saturday in the tomb. 
to Sunday's resurrection. And I know further on down the season, as we're winding down and we're getting close, we'll have a whole in-depth, elongated episode about the resurrection. But that brings us to a complete week when we include last episode where we began the first week where he came into Jerusalem until the tomb. Again, we will cover the resurrection in another episode, but it's striking to me that at the end of this week, we find Jesus at rest in the tomb. God's two greatest acts on this planet. At the end of the week of creation, God's first greatest act, he rests. And at the end of this week, God's second greatest act, Hmm. the act of redemption, Hmm. he rests as well. It's like the week comes to an end and he comes to life Hmm. for the new week. Hmm. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, read our blog, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo. The reason, the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way to the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.